This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. See that maroon flesh? Those fingernails? That horrible leathery texture? That's no mannequin. Well, I'll be damned. Yep, that's an arm. And it's been out in the elements for some time. I don't imagine it's been on your lawn for several weeks, ma'am. Any idea how it got here? Any dogs around? There's my little puppy. And one of the tenants has a Dalmatian. She usually lets it out for a run in the morning. Well, I don't know about a puppy, but a big Dalmatian could carry an arm a few miles. If that's what's happened, the rest of the body shouldn't be too far. Russo, forget the Dalmatian. Do you think it could be the Dupama girl? This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first episode on Jeanette De Palma, the 16-year-old girl whose unsolved 1972 murder has haunted the quiet community of Springfield Township, New Jersey, for decades. This week, we'll cover the theories of satanic sacrifice that spread throughout the tri-state area like wildfire, and the Springfield Police Department's suspiciously lackluster investigation. Next week, we'll look into other theories about the murder and the many sinister figures that lurked at the edges of Jeanette's seemingly innocent suburban life. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. On August 7th, 1972... 
16-year-old Jeanette De Palma left her house at 4 Clearview Drive in Springfield Township, New Jersey. She'd promised her best friend, who were calling Lily for privacy, that she would hitchhike over to Lily's before work. They both had part-time summer jobs in telemarketing. But Jeanette never arrived at Lily's, nor did she go to work. She didn't return home that night or any night over the next six weeks. When the Springfield police finally found her on September 19, 1972, she was little more than a skeleton covered in bits of clothing and rotting flesh. Her body, according to some eyewitnesses and the news media, was surrounded by satanic ritual objects. The validity of these claims is questionable. Some have pointed to the case as an early example of the so-called satanic panic that would grip America beginning in the early 1980s. Satanists or not, new theories continued to spring up around Jeanette's murder for years after her death. As recently as 2015, writers Jesse Pollock and Mark Moran wrote Death on the Devil's Teeth, examining the many theories, allegations, and suspicions that still float through the cheerful suburban streets of Springfield Township, New Jersey, and the surrounding Union County. Jeanette De Palma's murder, even today, haunts the peace of suburbia with memories of violence, loss, and the forever unknown. But in the summer of 1972, 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma's whole life was still ahead of her. Jeanette was a lot like any other Springfield Township teen. She was the sixth of seven children in an upper-middle-class Italian-American family. They lived in a newly constructed suburban area on the west side of town, on the side of a small mountain. Locals called it Springfield Top. Jeanette's life wasn't picture-perfect. Her parents, Florence and Salvatore, got into shouting matches that sometimes drew the attention of the police. There were rumors amongst the neighbors that her father was involved with the mafia. And she wasn't exactly the perfectly behaved religious girl her family would have liked her to be. The De Palmas were born-again evangelical Christians. Her mother thought of Jeanette as a devout kid, or at least talked about her daughter that way after Jeanette died. But Jeanette's classmates and other Springfield Township residents remembered her differently. She didn't fit the evangelical mold. She walked around school with an intense look on her face, rarely smiling, and was reportedly a little wild. Wild in this case sounds a whole lot like normal teenage behavior in the 1970s. Jeanette hung around with boys, smoked some pot, might have taken the occasional pill, and hitchhiked through town and the surrounding suburbs. Her friends said she lived in the moment talking about tomorrow or this weekend rather than long-term goals or plans. They said that if she'd had a career goal, it probably would have been rock star. But she'd never get the chance to start thinking seriously about her future. The promise of her teenage life was cut abruptly short the summer before her junior year of high school in 1972. You have to come over, Jeanette. Those boys from Echo Lake are coming, and I can't hang out with them alone. I'm just not sure I can make it before work, Lily. My mom wants me to scrub the bathrooms today. Jeanette, you promised you'd be here. It's only 11 a.m. Just scrub quickly, and then we can head to work together. One of the boys will drive us. 
Okay, okay. Uh, I'll hitchhike over. Should have enough time. I'll see you soon. Great. You're the best. See you soon. Hurry! Mom, I'm gonna finish up the bathrooms and then walk to the train station. I'll be back tonight. Okay, sweetheart. As long as the bathrooms are done, be careful on that walk. Ugh, three miles is a ways. Uh-huh. Once Jeanette left for Clearview Drive around midday, she reportedly stopped by the Bladdis home a few blocks away. Friends and classmates would say she was probably looking to get a ride from Donna Bladdis, another Springfield high schooler, or one of the many friends Donna generally had hanging around that summer. But Donna was grounded. She couldn't give Jeanette a ride, and she had no friends around the house to provide a ride either. So, according to most reports, Jeanette left the house and kept walking, checking the road for a car to hitch with over to Lily's house. She had never planned to take the train. Hitchhiking was her normal mode of transportation. It was a regular part of life for teens in the area, whether or not their parents supported the practice. It was the easiest way to get around, and Lily's house wasn't far. It was a quick eight-mile drive to Berkeley Heights, Jeanette would spend a few hours hanging out with her best friend and a couple of boys. An evening at the telemarketing office, the usual. But that's not what happened. Jeanette was never seen again after she left the Bladdis house. Not alive, anyway. The police at first treated Jeanette as a runaway, despite the De Palma's insistence that their daughter wasn't the type to leave home like that. The police assured Florence and Sal that teenagers were always running away these days. Jeanette would return home when she was ready. Florence and Sal reluctantly tried to believe this scenario. They checked in with contacts in New York City to see if she'd run off to the big city. They spoke with the parents of Jeanette's cousin Lisa, who had run away several times, but always came back. And of course... They prayed. But at 11 a.m. on September 19, 1972, that wishful narrative started to unravel. The Springfield Police Department thought they were looking into some kind of prank when the superintendent of Baltus Roll Gardens apartment complex near Springfield Top called in to say she had a human arm on her lawn. But they sent up an officer to investigate the scene just in case. It was, in the end, a real arm. Within four hours of Russo's arrival at the Baltusrol Gardens apartment complex, the police force and Union County Prosecutor's Office had a search party out combing the quiet, wooded neighborhood for the body. The Hudai Quarry was one of the group's first bets. It was located a five-minute walk from the apartment complex, and it was surrounded by woods and craggy rocks. The Springfield Police Department knew the quarry well. They used one of its secluded corners as a makeshift shooting range. Another corner of the quarry housed a bluff called Devil's Teeth. The bluff, back in the 1920s, was called Devil's Skull. According to interviews Jesse Pollock and Mark Moran conducted for their book Death on the Devil's Teeth, it was home to a natural depression in the stone, which local kids would clear of dirt and use as a little pool during the summer. Summer storms would keep the water fresh and clean. But come fall, the depression would dry out. Its surface would get lumpy and concave, like an inverted half-skull, hence Devil's Skull. In the 1950s, the Hudai Construction Materials Company, 
bought the area and started mining. They dumped their waste rock along the edges of the Devil's Skull Bluff, giving it a jagged edge. By the 1970s, Devil's Skull had become Devil's Teeth. It was less than a mile from the Baltus Roll apartment complex. That's where two officers, who we are calling Rick Johns and Tony Russo for privacy, landed at 4 p.m. during the search for Jeanette De Palma's body. This is a steep climb, Russo. You've been forgetting your runs, Johns. Keep climbing. We're almost at the top. Do you smell something? Well, there she is. Adams, I think we got her. Tan slacks and blue t-shirt, just like Jeanette was wearing the day she disappeared. Flip-flops next to the body, and I see a purse here too. Can't see the face, she's lying face down on the dirt here. Head resting on her arm, looks like. And her flesh... Well, I can see her feet, they're bare. And some of the flesh around her head. But... It's not all there. Looks like the animals have been at it. Copy that. We're on our way. Ah, man. Look at that color. She's gray, grayish brown. Ugh. At least where she's not a skeleton. And that hair, totally intact. Like a wig just sitting on her skull. She's been out here a long while, that's for sure. Look at those maggots. There was nothing around the body that looked like a clue, at least not at first. But Russo and some of the other officers started to notice something strange as they scanned the forest floor nearby. Not every officer saw what Russo saw. And we're about to hear two contradictory narratives, and both of them came from reliable eyewitnesses. According to Officer Russo, who went on record with his story for Pollock and Moran's book, two sticks were placed above Jeanette's head in the form of a cross. Stones were scattered around it in the shape of a semicircle, reminiscent of a halo. But another officer on the case, who we are calling Tom Adams for privacy, didn't see anything unusual around her, just the randomly scattered sticks, stones, and brush that covered the bluff's floor. The investigators were split between the two opinions in the days following the recovery of Jeanette's body. But the idea of these symbols would stick, because the investigators found little else to work with. There was nothing at Devil's Teeth to indicate whether the cause of death was an accident, suicide, or murder. And the medical examination didn't yield much useful information either. Jeanette's family dentist confirmed the decomposing body was hers on September 20th, 1972, the day after her body was recovered. But the coroner who conducted his examination on the 19th and through the 20th officially ruled the cause of her death as unknown. She had no bullet wounds, stab marks, or broken bones as far as he could find. Nothing to indicate that she'd been roughed up before her death or violently murdered. The coroner did find that the lead content of her body was unusually high, and he suggested that strangulation may have killed her, a theory that was leaked to the press on September 21st. Springfield's residents took it as proof that Jeanette's death was a homicide. But the investigators weren't so sure. 
They had a decomposed body with a high lead content and no clues as to what or who killed her. She'd exhibited no signs of lead poisoning before her death, so they quickly ruled out that possibility. All they knew was that the location of her body was unusual and that the lead content was odd. As they cataloged the clothing on her body back at the police station, they determined that the necklace she'd been wearing when she disappeared was missing. And according to some of them, the materials surrounding the body were strange too. That final factor would turn Jeanette's death from a local tragedy into the talk of cities from New York to Philadelphia. Coming up, Jeanette's death inflames a satanic panic in Springfield Township and around the tri-state area. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On September 19th, 1972, the Springfield Police Department found the body of missing 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma on a jagged bluff the locals called Devil's Teeth. The coroner ruled the cause of death unknown, and the investigators found no evidence pointing to a murderer, or even specifically to murder as the cause of death. One of their best bets at first seemed to be the collection of symbols around Jeanette's body, which may or may not have existed at all. The alleged symbols were composed of sticks and stones and were scattered on the wooded forest floor around Jeanette. Now, some investigators thought these rocks and branches were the randomly scattered natural objects that always pepper forest floors. Others saw a pattern. The news coverage of Jeanette's death reported exclusively on the latter explanation. By September 29th, 10 days after the discovery of the body, a local paper called the Elizabeth Daily Journal published the first article claiming witchcraft played a part in Jeanette's death. It reported, quote, Detectives throughout Union County had been alerted to the possibility that a cult or a cult member played a part in the death. One investigator said two pieces of wood were crossed on the ground over her head. More wood framed the body like a coffin. The article did include a caveat a quote from another person who was present at the time of the body's discovery. Quote, I guess if you were looking for signs, they were there. But the caveat was forgotten in subsequent stories. Articles in the Newark Star-Ledger added even more seemingly occult elements to the story of Jeanette's death than the Elizabeth Daily Journal had. They reported that smaller crosses made from twigs surrounded her body, as well as the large cross and the coffin. Well, the media in Springfield Township loved this witchy version of events, in keeping with the tastes of press across the country. The Church of Satan, founded in San Francisco in 1966, had garnered widespread fascination and horror from mainstream Americans just a few years before. And in the process, it had sold a lot of papers. 
A few years later, beginning in the early 1980s, a nationwide satanic panic would hit again, this time centered around allegations of satanic ritual abuse of young children. New Jersey's local press likely aimed to tap into America's fascination with Satanists and the occult with their coverage of Jeanette De Palma's murder. And it worked. The story sold. It's unclear, though, who the local paper's sources were. Rousseau, who was the first to discover the body, went on the record with his observation that there was a cross and a halo of stones above Jeanette's head. But he never claimed to have seen wood framing the body like a coffin, as the Elizabeth Daily Journal wrote, nor little crosses like those reported in the Star-Ledger, a newspaper based out of Newark. An interview with Jeanette's cousin Lisa did corroborate these claims decades later. Lisa went to Devil's Teeth on September 21st, she explained, three days after the body was discovered, and more than a week before the first article insinuating witchcraft was published. While there, she noticed the wood coffin and twig crosses where Jeanette's body had lain. In October 1972, claims made to the press by Jeanette's parents, Florence and Sal, added fuel to the fire. Mr. Palmer, can you tell us more about Jeanette? Did she do drugs? Ah, uh, no. Jeanette did not do drugs, sir. She was a good girl. She was on her path towards God. We are members of the Assemblies of God Evangel Church, and Jeanette worked with the youth groups there. She was a devout girl. I wasn't making an accusation. A lot of teenagers are smoking grass these days. But you don't think she might have dabbled? as well as working with the youth groups, of course. Maybe she tried a few things. It was nothing serious like heroin. She was on pills, maybe marijuana. But when Jeanette received Jesus, she stopped using drugs. She was on a good path. She wanted to live a normal life. Right, right. Thank you, ma'am. Yes, I'm, I'm sure she was a wonderful kid. We're so sorry for your loss. Florence's narrative of Jeanette as a deeply devout religious girl, at least at the end of her life, took hold in the papers, especially once their church's pastor, Pastor James Tate, started advertising it. On October 2nd and 3rd, respectively, the local Elizabeth Daily Journal and the Star-Ledger published articles in which Tate posited that Jeanette's godly ways led Satanists to murder her. On October 4th, the New York Daily News picked up the story. Papers around the tri-state area followed suit. I'm sure Jeanette herself was not involved in devil worship, but I know that many of the other young people in this area are involved. These kids tell us that when they are on drugs, they are in the control of Satan. They do things they don't want to do and say things they don't want to say because of the power of evil. Jeanette was extremely religious and very devout. She may have attempted to lecture them about Jesus. Their fanaticism arose and they killed her. But Jeanette's story soon started to outstrip the control of any one narrative. Rumors spread that her death had something to do with another heinous murder in the neighboring town of Westfield that had occurred in 1971. 
Remember the John List murder last year? He killed his wife and children, laid them all out in his ballroom on sleeping bags, and then disappeared. Sure, yes, of course. No one could forget that. Well, there was some occult stuff involved there. They say there were strange symbols in that ballroom, and his daughter was supposedly involved with a group of teenage witches. So you think this thing with the De Palma girl is related? Can't say I'd be surprised. One year apart, one town away. As rumors swirled, they got more outrageous. Yeah, mutilated animal remains. That's what I heard. Jeanette De Palma was just the piece de resistance on a total bloodbath. I mean, if there was a pentagram, and I heard there was, it had to have been some crazy group of teenage witches. It's these drugs they're all into these days. People are out of their minds, literally. They don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Some Springfield Township residents even started to wonder if Jeanette had brought her death upon herself. Well, I heard she was a witch. Or hung around with a crowd that was into that stuff. Yeah, totally. I heard she had some occult books in her bedroom or something. Maybe she wanted to sacrifice herself. I saw some kids out at Watchung Reservation decapitating pigeons a while back, and I heard there was a goat sacrifice around there at some point, too. The stories about witchcraft in Springfield Township and the surrounding Union County, usually stories featuring teenagers, weren't limited to the De Palma story. The Elizabeth Daily Journal ran an article entitled Do Pupils Pray to the Devil on October 4, 1972. It cited a high school sophomore's testimony that teenagers were hosting seances and occult rituals in the woods. There were whispers of the witches, a reported satanic group operating in the area. Well, there is evidence that local residents believe there was a real occult presence in Union County in the 1970s, though these kinds of claims were routinely used to demonize counterculture groups. The changing social norms and views of drug usage of many 1970s teens probably led peers and adult members of the community to blow any strange behavior out of proportion into something much larger than it was when even the hairstyles and clothing choices of some of these young people looked so strange, it's not hard to see how anti-normative behavior might have been framed as anti-Christian occult practices. But it's also worth pointing out that lead, which was found in very high levels in Jeanette's body, is commonly used in occult rituals. According to some occultists, it's considered the metal of resurrection and transformation, and is sometimes used in rituals involving communication with the underworld. And Jeanette was found on a rock called Devil's Teeth. It sounded like the kind of place where Satanists would commit a ritual sacrifice. But the rumors about witchcraft and Satanism in Union County all cited the Wachung Reservation Nature Reserve as the center of occult worship, not Hudai Quarry, where Jeanette's body was found. And lead content was high in soil across America during the 1970s, thanks to the common use of lead paint. According to Dr. Judy Melanick, a forensic pathologist interviewed by Pollock and Moran, if the tissue sample tested during Jeanette's autopsy was contaminated by soil, the high lead content could be easily explained. Plus, the symbols that Officer Russo saw surrounding Jeanette's body in the woods weren't actually particularly occult. They were Christian iconography, crosses, and not upside-down ones either. 
and a coffin or halo form has no apparent connection with occult or satanic ritual, as far as our research could find. On top of all that, no credible reports ever mentioned pentagrams or dead animals surrounding Jeanette's body. The satanic connection in the end didn't hold up, but the rumors were everywhere, and it was impeding the investigation. No one was coming forward to the press or the police with stories about anything but witchcraft. When Lily, Jeanette's best friend, called up the department asking if Satanists really murdered Jeanette in a sacrificial ritual, they came to her house to explain their position. Can I get you some coffee? Tea? No thanks, Lily. Thanks for offering. We're just stopping by for a moment. But I wanted to come and talk with you in person. I know these papers have been printing a whole lot of nothing about Satanists and ritual sacrifice and this and that. But just so you know, we don't think that's what happened. Well, okay, that's a relief. But where did it all come from? Jeanette's parents sure seem to have bought the story. Well, we considered it, but it didn't pan out. We think whatever we found around her was probably just forest debris. Okay, so you have no idea how it happened then? Who did this to her? Well, not yet, no, but we're conducting interviews, putting together a timeline of that last day. We'll need to talk to you, Lily. We're going to figure out what happened to your friend eventually, but it may take a little time. I see. Well, I'm happy to help. Whoever did this to Jeanette should be punished. Well, Miss Lily, we agree. We'll be in touch. You just keep your chin up and stay safe. Lily was relieved. She knew Jeanette wasn't a Satanist. And she also knew Jeanette wasn't particularly committed to the religious lifestyle promoted by her parents. But Satanists were the only suspects the papers were talking about. And Jeanette's parents seemed to have bought the theory. The police, at least, seemed like they were looking at the same version of reality as Lily was. Jeanette's death wasn't going to be explained by teenage Satanists gone wild with drugs and wicked beliefs whatever Pastor Tate told the Elizabeth Daily Journal. The investigators needed information, and they needed suspects. And as the press went wild with its theories, they got just that. Sometime in October 1972, a young man walked into the police department, and he made a big claim. I know who killed Jeanette De Palma. Coming up, we'll hear about the man called Baltus Roll Red, who lived by devil's teeth. And now, back to our story. In October 1972, the press was still claiming Satanists killed Jeanette De Palma in a ritual sacrifice. But as they printed wild rumors of decapitated pigeons and teen seances, the police were following a new lead. A young man... We don't know his real name, so we'll call him Carl. Walked into the Springfield Police Headquarters and announced that he knew who killed Jeanette De Palma. Sit down, please. Make yourself comfortable. So, you say you know who killed Jeanette De Palma? That's right. There is someone who lived right there in the quarry. 
maybe 50 yards away from where she was found. A tall, skinny guy, scraggly, red hair and a big beard. Weird looking, like an old hippie. Probably in his 30s. Any job? Yeah. So he worked up at the Baltusrol Golf Club as a caddy. You know how the system up there works? The club doesn't hire caddies. It just lets these guys hang around, and whenever someone needs a caddy, they call up the caddy shack for one of these guys. I know the system. So this guy works at the club during golf season and lives in the woods nearby the golf course. Once again, 50 yards from where Jeanette De Palma's body was found. Is that why you're saying he killed Jeanette De Palma? No, no. I mean, yes, in part. He was there, but there's more. Right around the time Jeanette De Palma disappeared, he disappeared too. The investigators launched into action. They finally had a viable suspect. First, they went out to the quarry to check out Red's makeshift home. When they arrived, they were startled. This thing is tiny. The man lived in a sardine can. Uh, looks like there's a blanket in there, some canned food, some pots. Someone lived here all right. Look at this pot. There's old rice rotting in here. Does seem like he left in a bit of a hurry. That doesn't look too great for Mr. Baltusrol Red. Well, we don't need to jump to conclusions like the kids, Russo. True, true. These caddies do migrate, following the golfers who like them to other golf courses in the area. Could be the reason he left. But even if he wasn't involved, he might have seen something. Could have scared him off. Maybe that's why he ran. Although if that's the case, it'd be odd if he left behind his things. Let's get up to the golf course and see if anyone over there knows anything about him, or where to find him. Put up some flyers around town. In late fall 1972, the police department located Baltusrol Red's family down in Georgia. Through the family, they found their man. Red's family, it turned out, had money. And when law enforcement interviewed him, he had an attorney present. We're not entirely sure what went on in that interview. We'll never know why Baltus Royal Red left the Hudai Quarry so abruptly. But what's clear is that the investigators decided he didn't know anything about Jeanette's murder. In an interview years later, Officer Adams explained that Red likely had no idea Jeanette's decomposing body was lying 50 yards from his campsite. We have a lot of deer down by us, and if a deer runs across the road and gets smacked by a car, sometimes they crawl into the woods on my property. My house is about 200 feet away from these woods, and I can't smell them. However, if you get within 50 feet, you know it. So where Red would have been, 50 yards away, there was no way he would have smelled that. There was no way he would have smelled anything. Baltus Roll Red's proximity to the body didn't guarantee he even knew Jeanette was dead much less that he had killed her himself, the police let him go. He never came back to Springfield, the Baltus Roll golf course, or the Devil's Teeth, as far as anyone knows. Maybe the place made him feel guilty. Some of Springfield's residents still think Red committed the crime, and since we're not sure what happened in his interview with the police, we have no idea what he said that made them let him go. It's hard to say whether or not they're wrong. Now, with their only lead dead, the killer was still at large. Jeanette had died in August 1972. Baltus Roll Red was eliminated as a suspect by wintertime. And after all that time, investigators were no closer to figuring out how or why Jeanette died. 
They needed to know who, besides Red, spent time around the quarry and might have seen or heard something on August 7th, or whatever day Jeanette was brutally murdered at Devil's Teeth. The only other person they could find was a man named Tommy Rillo. Tommy Rillo was the quarry watchman. Ed Kish described him as a little slow. And other Springfield residents, interviewed by Jesse Pollock and Mark Moran, echoed the sentiment. The job up at the quarry, they said, was just right for him. He patrolled around the area at night, mostly watching the mining equipment. Some investigators and many Springfield residents whispered that it was very strange that Jeanette's body was lying in the quarry for six weeks and Rillo never noticed it. Well, that's certainly odd. His job, after all, was to watch out for anything untoward happening in the quarry. A murder and a decomposing body certainly should have qualified. But Rillo's job wasn't really to sweep all the wooded land around the quarry. He stuck around the quarry's buildings where the equipment was stored. He was looking after what was valuable to the Hudai Construction Materials Company. And that didn't include Devil's Teeth, which was, after all, an old waste rock dump site for the quarry. The nearest building was 100 yards away. In the end, the investigation dismissed Rillo as a suspect, too. They still had nothing. The case was going cold. And the people of Springfield were starting to wonder if maybe there was a reason the police hadn't turned up more evidence. The police shooting range was in the Hudai Quarry, so the cops were around there fairly often, playing with their guns. Certainly the Springfield Police Department had no reason to want Jeanette De Palma dead, but what if it had been an accident? Just one stray bullet could have done it. The autopsy hadn't come up with the cause of death. That meant that technically anything could have killed Jeanette. It could have been a gunshot wound. But it's not too likely. Even with the decomposed condition of Jeanette's body by the time it got to the morgue, a gunshot wound would probably have come up in the autopsy. Unless the autopsy was rigged. But the cop's makeshift shooting range was on the opposite end of the quarry from where Jeanette's body had been found. And Devil's Teeth was a steep climb. Not an easy place to dump a body if she was shot somewhere else. The theory sounds a lot like the disappointed whispers of a town doubting their police force's abilities. There had been a maddening lack of progress on the investigation. The years dragged on. The investigation couldn't find a single suspect. Jeanette's murder started to recede into the past. But Springfield's residents weren't ready to forget it or to accept the department's failure. As the 1970s wore on, another rumor started to spread about the Springfield Police Department's culpability for Jeanette De Palma's death. Let me tell you what I just heard. You'll never believe it. <laughs> You're right. I probably won't. Oh, come on. You want to hear this. Remember how the investigation into that De Palma girl's murder never found a damn thing? Well, I heard something about why. Oh, I remember. I heard a lot of things about that whole affair. Sometimes it's better to let the rumors lie. People love to talk. Sure, but this comes straight from Norma, who heard it straight from her brother-in-law on the police force. 
And it sure makes sense. Well, go on. So George Parcell, chief of the police force, you know, his son died of suicide, I heard, after the murder. Did he? That's too bad. Well, yes, but I heard that this son of Parcells liked Jeanette De Palma. Liked her a lot. She didn't feel the same way. And then poof, she died. So we blame it on the poor kid who had a crush on her? Well, it's the only explanation that makes any sense. The satanic stuff was all total insanity. The rumor that Parcell's son had killed Jeanette, like the rumor that the police force had accidentally shot her, didn't have much basis in fact. Even the claim that one of Parcell's sons died of suicide was fabricated. Officer Adams explained that plenty of cops on the force hated Parcell's guts. He guessed that this particular rumor may have actually started in the police force itself. If it did, those cops only served to implicate themselves in a murder. A police cover-up would have taken the cooperation of at least a few men. Parcell couldn't have done it alone. But wherever the rumor originated, nothing ever came of it. The case, as far as the investigation was concerned, went cold. It was never closed, but it was very, very cold. The Springfield Police Department's files on the case were lost in flooding in 1999, along with the rest of the department's pre-1995 files, according to the department, at least. At least one cop maintains that the files mysteriously disappeared earlier, around 1980. However, or why ever, the records were destroyed, it looked like any chance of unraveling the mystery of Jeanette De Palma had been destroyed with them. No progress had ever been made on the case. No single suspect had been successfully tied to the murder. And there weren't many suspects to speak of anyway, at least not until 2003. More than three decades after Jeanette's death, the host of suspicious figures circling her quiet suburban existence finally came to light. Next week, we'll find out what brought the De Palma case back to life and the sinister connection Jeanette's death may have had to some of Union County's most brutal murders. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Jeanette De Palma murder. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more information on Jeanette De Palma's murder, amongst the many sources that we used, we found Devil's Teeth, the strange murder that shocked suburban New Jersey. Extremely helpful to our research. Well, several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live until next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Nora Battelle and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Rebecca Ahrens Diamond, Jerry Courtney Austin, Heston Mosier, Steve Pinto, and Jack Shulruff.